You receive invitations all the time. How do you decide whether or not to accept an invitation? Scripture is filled with heartfelt invitations from God to you. He invites those who are exhausted, curious, searching, or in need to find what we need most in Him. Will you accept the invitation? I brought a table. You thought this was part of VBS stage, right? I don't think Esther sat at a table like this. Maybe, maybe the king did. No, I brought this table because I want us to think about something so important today. And I want it locked into your memory so that you reflect back on this moment, on this message. More than that, on God's word and how it speaks to who we are to be and how we are to live. The table is such an important part of our culture. It has been for a long time. It is where we gather with family and friends and sometimes total strangers. Last weekend, holiday weekend, my side of the family came to our house for the weekend and we had several meals together and we had a lot of fun together. And Sunday lunch after church, we were gathered around the island or the table in our kitchen and there were probably 20 or 25 people in there. And you know how it is at these kinds of things. There's little kids running around everywhere. There's people trying to get food and find a place to sit. It's controlled chaos. And all of a sudden, I hear the front door. I'm in the kitchen. I hear the front door open. I don't think anything about it. In just a moment, two older ladies walk into the kitchen holding food. And I look at these two older ladies, and I don't recognize them which isn't a huge deal because I just assumed that maybe they belonged to one of the cousins and they were friends or relatives and they invited them or maybe at that morning Carrie Ann met someone at church and she invited them to lunch and hey the more the merrier bring it on but Carrie Ann was thinking the same thing she didn't know them I didn't know them she didn't know them turns out no one knew them My nephew had let them in because they knocked on the door and he just assumed they belonged to someone and he said, come on in. So these two older ladies are standing in our kitchen holding food and we have this awkward stare down. And I hear one of them lean over to the other and say, I know we're in the right place. (laughs) And I'm thinking, well, if you're in the right place, I'm in the wrong place. I have no idea who you are. And so we have this literally these moments of silence where we're just trying to I mean all the wheels are turning on everyone we're trying to make some kind of connection and then one of the ladies says well is this 4200 talking about the address and I said no ma'am I'm sorry that's next door (laughs) she said oh we're not in the right place (laughs) I said that's fine you're welcome to stay or if you want to go leave your food here and then you can go to the neighbors (laughs) they took their food and So we walked them to the front door, and they were so embarrassed. And, you know, we had a good laugh, but they were terribly embarrassed. And one of the older ladies, her hands were full, and she was trying to put her sunglasses on. I said, well, can I I help you as we went to the front door? And by that I meant, can I hold that dish while you put on your glasses and get ready to go outside? And she said, yes, that would be great. If you could just put these glasses on me, that would be great. (laughs) So I'm taking these sunglasses, trying not to jab her in the eye as I put them on some total stranger that I just sort of met we opened the door and we sent them on their way the table is a place where people come together sometimes it's people who know each other really well sometimes it's people who don't know each other very well at all for a moment I want you to picture your dining table your family table 
your gathering place. Maybe it's a bar, maybe it's a table, maybe it's something like this, maybe it's bigger, maybe it's smaller. I want you to think about that place where you gather as a family for meals, and hopefully that's not always the TV room. Hopefully you have a table of some, some sort. And maybe you don't think necessarily about the table you have now, but maybe you want to think back to when you were a kid. You think back to that dinner table. Where was that table? What did it look like? What was on that table or what's on your table right now? Are there books? Are there projects? Are there plates? Are there last night's leftovers? <laughs> Is there a centerpiece? Are there placemats? Is there a tablecloth, salt and pepper shakers? What's on that table? I want you to get the picture in your mind. Now, let me ask you, what happens or what happened around that table? Who was there? Probably, if you're like my family, when I was growing up, and to some extent even now, we all had our assigned seats, right? And you didn't sit in someone else's seat because that's where you always sat. So everyone sort of had their assigned seats. But who's around that table and what's the conversation like? What happened at that table when it wasn't mealtime? Did you do homework there? Was it a place where you did projects or you had family meetings or you did the budget? You did craft projects. What happened at that table? Did you play board games? You probably have memories around the table. Laughter, maybe tears, making big decisions, certainly sharing meals together. Maybe when you look at your table, you see some crayon marks or some stains from food or cup rings on the table from all of those times, all of those meals, all of those interactions. And a part of you wanted to buff those scratches out or get those water rings out or you tried to get those crayons off there, but they just became part of the landscape. They just became part of the table to help tell the story. Every table has a story multiple stories many stories if your table could talk what would it say what would it say is important to you who would it say is important to you you see the table is a place of connection it is a place of community it is a place of conversation it's a place where we gather where we look at each other eye to eye where we share a meal together where we have conversations sometimes about seemingly unimportant things and sometimes we have conversations that go deeply. It's no surprise and it's no wonder that when you open up your Bible throughout Scripture you will see that so many important events happen around a table. There are so many times when there are meals happening where something significant is going on where Jesus is doing something big, where God is doing something big. Think about the, one of the primary images for God's people in the Old Testament. It was the Passover meal. And people gathered for that meal to celebrate God's deliverance of his people. Think about the New Testament, including us. Today, what we did, we symbolically gathered around what? The table. We used to actually have a table up here. I kind of missed the table very symbolic of what happens when Jesus invites us to the table to partake of his body and his blood to remember his death and proclaim his death. You see, even for us as New Testament Christians, the table is an important symbol. We share that meal together. When you think about Jesus and some of the 
the sermons he gave and some of the miracles he did and some of the things that he taught. So many times there was a meal there. In fact, someone has said when Jesus wanted to teach his disciples or prepare them for his impending death, he didn't give them a theory, he gave them a meal. And think about the resurrected Jesus when he appeared to Peter and wanted to validate Peter and forgive Peter and reinstate Peter after Peter had denied him three times. What did Jesus do? He made breakfast. He made breakfast on that beach of the Sea of Galilee and he invited Peter and some of the other apostles to eat with him, to fellowship with him, to sit down. And you might say, well, there wasn't a table there. And by the way, when I say table throughout this message today, sometimes I mean literal table. Sometimes it is a table. But many times it's, it's symbolic. It's symbolic of what happens around the table. It's symbolic of who is around the table. It's symbolic of the conversations happening in our lives. So you might say, well, Jesus didn't have a table on the beach. And you might be right, but it's interesting. If you go there to that beach today on the Sea of Galilee, on the north side there, you will see this huge limestone rock. This rock is so big, they've actually built a church over it. Here's a picture of it. A church over it, and the rock spills out through the church onto the beach. You can't really tell by this picture, but there on the right side of your screen, that rock keeps going through the wall, and at least that much or more of the rock is outside. You see that sign there? It says, Mensa Christi. Do you know what that means? Table of Christ. This is the spot where it is believed Jesus had that breakfast, where he invited his apostles to sit down and eat with him, where he forgave and reinstated Peter. Mensa Christi, table of Christ. Today, I want you to think about Mensa Christi. I want you to think about and meditate on the table of Christ, Jesus' table. Who sat at Jesus' table? With whom did he share table fellowship? Who did he invite to sit down with him? And what happened there? What was the conversation like? Why did Jesus sit down with the people he sat down with? What was he doing? What was his goal? How did those people maybe feel? I want you to think about the table of Christ, not only as it relates to what we read in Scripture, but then applying that to your own life. What does this mean for us as we consider the table of Christ? You see, because not only does Jesus invite you to his table, not only does he say, you have a place at my table, and all that comes with that, the significance of that invitation, but also he asks you to be like him, to be a host like him, inviting others to the table. Who do you invite? Who do you engage in conversation with? Are there people that you refuse to invite to the table for whatever reason? In Luke's gospel, there are a lot of meals there's a lot of food. I like Luke's gospel. <laughs> in fact, an interesting study would be to go through Luke's gospel and to look at all the meals and begin to get a picture of Jesus and what he was all about. And of course, one of those most well-known meals is what we call the Last Supper. Luke chapter 22. If you have a Bible, you might want to read along. Some of the verses will be on the screen. Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread, 
on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Jesus and his apostles were Jewish and it was a time for all who were Jewish to celebrate the Passover, God's deliverance of his people out of Egyptian captivity. But Jesus knows this Passover is going to be different. You see, on this Passover, Passover itself becomes the stage on which Jesus ushers in a new Passover, a new deliverance, a new meal. As I said, we call it the Lord's Supper. So we keep reading in verse 14. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Jesus takes the bread and he takes the cup and he repurposes these items in light of his impending death. He, as we say, institutes the Lord's Supper. And as he's talking about the cup, the cup of wrath, the cup of suffering, the cup that is the blood that he will shed, he includes another detail for his immediate audience and by extension to us as well. Back in the text, verse 21, Jesus says, but the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. Just think about this for a moment. The table, I'm sure, did not look like this. It was probably lower. The text says they were reclining at the table. It had to probably be bigger for all of them to be around it. But at this intimate setting, this place of connection, this place of community, who is there? Judas is there. Jesus says, one of you will betray me. We know now it was Judas. Judas knew that it was him. And Jesus tells them and us that he knows it's Judas. And yet, who is at Jesus' table? The betrayer. Jesus allows him to have table fellowship with him. But it's not just Judas who will turn his back on Jesus, is it? It's all of them. They will all run. They will all leave Jesus in his time of need. And Peter, as we've already said, will deny even knowing him multiple times. And yet Jesus sits down with them. In fact, he says, I eagerly await this. I've been looking forward to this. You see, for Jesus, the table was not about power. It was about purpose. I want you to understand why Jesus had table fellowship with the people that were there around his table. It was about purpose. You see, for so many people, table means power. It's a place to exert power. It's a a place to, to show order. We even talk about what? The head of the table, who sits at the head of the table. And sometimes at at banquets and meals, we have the head table. Ah, Those are the most important people the people of honor, so many times, either literally or symbolically, the table is a place to exert power, to establish a pecking order. Sort of a benign example is, I don't know about you, anyone else at Thanksgiving or Christmas have the table extension dilemma? You know, not everyone will fit around the main table, so find the card table. We get the card table out and we butt it up against the end, but if we need that spot, we 
put it even farther out so someone can sit there, right? And then as the family grows, we've got to find another table. Do we have any more card tables? No, but we can drag that coffee table over here. Okay. We can turn that big box upside down and put a tablecloth on it. Okay, let's do that. And everybody at the main table, man, they got the nice dishes. They got cloth napkins. They got the fancy salt and pepper shaker. You know, the stemware glasses, the big bowls of the food. Over here on the table extension, what do you got? Mismatched dishes, right? We got a salt shaker, but we couldn't find the extra pepper shaker, so, you know, do without. You got paper napkins. Life is not the same on the card table, on the kids' table. Now, again, that's, that's more really about function, right, in space. We, we want to get everybody there, and so we just try to make do. So that's why it's probably not a great example, but it gets you to think about this idea of power and status and how we use different contexts to establish that. It wasn't that way for Jesus. It wasn't about power at all. It was about his purpose and his mission. In fact, Jesus, as he reclines at the table with his apostles, he doesn't say, now wait just a second, Peter, you're sitting in my seat. That's the head of the table. Get up. What does Jesus do at the table? He gets up. Where does he go? He leans down, and he gets a bowl of water, and he gets a towel, and he begins to go around the table, washing those dirty, smelly, denying, betraying feet. <laughs> those feet that are going to run away from him. He washes their feet. And then he says something to them. John tells us in his gospel, John chapter 13, verse 14, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, so you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. You see, for Jesus, the table wasn't a place to exert power, to establish status, or to show a pecking order. It became a platform for ministry and mission. He was preparing those disciples not only for his death, but what their job would be after his death, to build the kingdom, to advance the kingdom, to eventually establish the church. And he said, I want you to do that with the heart of service and sacrifice. And this is what that looks like. So many times we get mixed up in fact, 1 Corinthians 11, what is Paul getting on to the Corinthian church about when it comes to the Lord's Supper? It's because they're using the table of our Lord as a place to establish order and status and power. He says, some of you are eating and you're forgetting everyone else. You're sitting at the main table and you're pushing everybody else aside. That's not what the table of Christ is about. He had a purpose and a mission. We see that same sense of purpose earlier in Luke's gospel as well. In that well-known story, our kids really love it, the story of Jesus and Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector, the wealthy chief tax collector, the short wealthy chief tax collector. He couldn't see Jesus, so what did he do? He climbed up a tree to get a better look at Jesus, and he got more than he bargained for. Luke 19, verse 5, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter. 
There's always the mutterers, aren't there? They began to mutter. He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. You see, in strict Orthodox Jewish culture, especially when it came to the religious elite, what you did at the table and who was there was so important, incredibly important. In fact, someone has said that the Pharisees came up with 341 traditions or commands or things that they became, in their minds, law. And of those, something like 229 of those had to do with what happens at the table, eating rituals, cleansing rituals, purity rites, clean, unclean, status, who can sit there, who can't. You gotta do this before you have a place at the table. And so for them, it was all about power. For them, it was all about show. For them, it was all about status. And Jesus sits down with a traitor, chief tax collector, someone for the Jews had sold out to the Romans. Not only had he sold out to the Romans, he was punishing them, he was cheating them, he was taking his own people's money from them. And Jesus sits down at a table with him, a known sinner. Why would he do that? What's his purpose? If the table is a place and a platform for purpose, what was Jesus' purpose? Well, we don't have to guess. He tells us. Verse 9, Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. You see, table fellowship for Jesus was about connecting around a higher purpose. Jesus said, I am here and I am doing this because I am here to seek and to save the lost. How can you seek and save the lost if you don't engage them in conversation? How can you seek and save the lost if you don't welcome them with sincerity and love? How can you seek and save the lost if you are determined to keep your distance from the lost because you're afraid they might rub off on you? How can we do that if we continually see ourselves better or more important than others? You see, for Jesus, it was about a purpose, a higher purpose, a more important purpose. But for him, it wasn't just about purpose. For Jesus, it was also about people. He cared. He truly cared about people. And because of his love and his concern and his care for people, he took on a posture of inclusion. Think about that phrase, a posture of inclusion. What does Jesus say about Zacchaeus? Remember the tax collector? I'm going to come to your house. We're sitting around the table. People are walking by. They're muttering. Why does Jesus sit with that tax collector, with those sinners, with those awful people? Jesus says, I came to seek and save the lost. But what else did he say to Zacchaeus and to anyone who would listen? He said, this man is a son of Abraham. Do you understand the significance of what Jesus said there? He's a son of Abraham. He is Jewish. He is of God's covenant people. Everyone around him had written him off. He's not one of us. He's a traitor. He is sold out to the Roman government. He is taking our money and giving it to them and pocketing a lot of it himself. He's not one of us. And Jesus says, no, no. With me, he is one of us. He is a son of Abraham. You see that spirit of inclusion, that posture of inclusion? 
when everyone else hated this man, when everyone else had no use for this man, when they had written him off and disfellowshipped him and disbanded him, Jesus says, he is with me. This wasn't the only time Jesus was criticized and held in contempt for who he ate with. Right after Jesus' calling of Matthew in the text, he's also called Levi, who, by the way, is also a tax collector, a despised tax collector. After Jesus calls Matthew to follow him, Jesus sits down with Matthew and some of his tax collector buddies, and they have a meal together. And when you know it, people see it, and they criticize Jesus. Mark chapter 2, verse 15. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners, and by the way, sinners, it's kind of a weird label, isn't it? What this probably means is everyone knew they were sinners. I mean, we're all sinners, right? But these people, they had observable sin. You might say they even maybe embraced the sinful lifestyle. Pharisees saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors. They asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Again, among the Jewish, the ancient Jewish culture, especially among the religious elite, when you sat down at the table with someone, it meant you religiously accepted them. That, that you said you're okay. That we're on the same page. And don't you know some of these sinners and tax collectors, they were probably the riffraff. <laughs> they were probably some of them weren't repentant. Probably some of them maybe followed Jesus, but just because they wanted the free meals or they, it was interesting, exciting, they hadn't really changed their lives. I mean, it doesn't say that they were, were tax collectors. It says they are. Don't you know some of them are just, they talked rough and, and they just looked different and they acted differently. And yet Jesus fellowships them. He sat down with them. So was he condoning their behaviors? Did he approve of their lifestyles? Was Jesus being soft on sin? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. Association does not always assume agreement. Connection does not always mean consent. If I sit down with someone at the table, someone who lives an ungodly lifestyle, someone who holds an ungodly perspective, someone who chooses to live, to think, to believe, to act in ways that dishonor God rather than honor God. If I choose to sit down with someone at the table like that, I'm not condoning their behaviors. I care about the person. There's a difference. Jesus cared deeply. Sometimes I wonder what we're afraid of. What are we afraid of? If we're honest with ourselves, we're afraid of what people will think. You know, like the Pharisees, those walking by, seeing Jesus associate with the sinners and tax collectors. Why does he do that? Why doesn't he know who they are? We're, we're afraid. What will people think of us? What will they say about us? What will they say about us as a church? What will they say about us as individuals if we associate with sinners? If we sit down and have table fellowship with those who choose a lifestyle that dishonors God. Let me ask you, if we're that worried about what people think, especially people who make a rash judgment without knowing what's happening, 
Is that right? Is that good? Should we really care what people think? Especially when they don't even know what's happening? You say, well, what, what about the person himself? What's he going to think if I embrace him? He's going to think I'm condoning his life or she's going to think I agree with what she believes. Or, Well, that's the beauty of sitting at the table. Talk. <laughs> Have a conversation. And I would say probably after doing a lot of listening, but it's at the table where you have a chance to say what you believe. It's at the table where you have a chance to share truth. It's at the table when you're looking at each other and listening to each other where you have an opportunity to be an ambassador of Christ. Jesus cared deeply for people. He shows us how to lead with love. Look how he responds to the criticism in Mark chapter 2, verse 17. On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. <laughs> he says, See these people that you are targeting, these people you're criticizing? They are why I'm here. For Jesus, it was about purpose, and it was about people. In fact, people were his purpose. He cares so much for you. He cared and still does care so much for those in need, for those who are considered outcasts, for those who often find themselves on the outside looking in, who don't quite measure up, those who are hurting, those who are grieving, those who are suffering, those who are caught up in sin who don't think they can get out of it. Jesus cares deeply. He said, I came for you. I came for those who are suffering and sick. He cares so much that he was willing to put his name and his reputation on the line. More than that, he was willing to put his life on the line. He was willing to be mistreated and misunderstood and ultimately murdered, crucified, killed, because he cares so much. So what does that mean for us? What does the mensa Christi mean for us, the table of Christ? I think it means a couple of things as you try to make application. First of all, and, and maybe some of you really need to hear this today. First of all, you need to know that you are invited to the table. Jesus has a place for you at his table. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how bad you think your life is or how messed up or how not like the people you think have it all together, you are. You know what Jesus does? He says, come on. And he pulls out a chair. He says, I have a place for you at the table. And he doesn't say, well, let's see. Let's see if we can make room. I don't know. Wait right there. We'll move some things around. Okay, we'll add a table. He says, no, you get the place of honor. In fact, you know what Jesus does? He gets up from the table and he says, here, take my seat. This seat is yours. And he pushes you up to the table and then he goes and he gets the bowl and he gets the towel and you know what he does with it. He washes your feet. That's our Savior. That's the host of the great feast. He invites you to it. No matter where you're from, no matter how much money you have or don't have, no matter what you've done, no matter the color of your skin or the language that comes out of your mouth, Jesus says, there's a place for you at the table. 
The second part of that is we are not only humble guests and recipients of God's grace and Jesus' inclusive nature, but we are to be reflections of those things in the world. We are to set the table for the world. We are to invite others to the table. And that's easy when it's people like us, right? We like to eat with people who think like us, who act like us. But let me ask you, who are the people that you struggle most with to include at the table? Now remember, table literal, table symbolically. Who are the people that you struggle the most with? Is it the people who think differently? The people with whom you disagree? The people on the other side of the political divide? Is it the people who are confused about their identity in a way that makes you really uncomfortable? The people who choose a life that makes you squirm? The people who believe differently and talk differently, who have a different set of values? Who is it? Are you willing to pull out a chair and make a place at the table for them. In the name of Christ, for the purpose of Christ, and following the example of Christ, are you willing to do that? Someone wrote about this very concept and said that holy things happen at the table. Things happen at the table that don't necessarily happen at church because at church, you know, you're staring at the back of someone's head and yet at the table, you get to see face to face. At church, we're always on the clock and some of you are looking at the clock now and just so you know, I am too. (laughs) We're almost done. At the church, we're always on the clock, but at the table, you have time. You have time to talk. The same writer pointed out that the word hospitable or hospitality and the word hospital come from the same root word, and they both lead to the same place, healing. This is where healing happens, because this is where Jesus shows up, where people feel like they belong, where conversation happens, where prayer happens, where study of God's word happens. It's where life is shared and done together. It's where healing happens. You see, at Jesus' table, we see a vision of God's kingdom, don't we? We see a vision of God's kingdom. And we anticipate that great feast one day when people from all over the world, different tribes, different tongues, different stories, different perspectives will gather at the table and there will be a beautiful feast. But there is one thing you need. There is one thing you need that you will need to sit at that table. In Matthew 22, there is the parable of the wedding banquet. It's an interesting story. The story is a reflection of God working in the world among his people. This king is having a a wedding ceremony and he invites the designated guests. And in this parable, that is the covenant Israel, the Jewish people, God's people. So the invitation goes out and yet many of them refuse to accept the invitation. They have excuses. We're busy. We got other stuff going on. We can't make it. And so they don't come. And so the host says, well, then invite anyone and everyone you can find. In fact, the text says in Matthew 22, the good and the bad. Invite anyone. And so the banquet hall is filled with people, all these people. And the king walks through and he sees one that stands out from the crowd 
because he's dressed differently. He doesn't have the proper clothes on. And in sort of a twist, unexpected twist in the story, the king has this man thrown out. Sounds harsh, doesn't it? But see, the story is that God invited his covenant people and they rejected Jesus. So he opened it up to all the world to accept Jesus. That's it. To accept Jesus. That's the invitation. What are the proper clothes for this feast? It's not the self-righteousness robe that we sometimes try to wear. See, I'm good enough. I've done enough. I know enough. No. Galatians 3, 26 and 27, Paul tells us, So in Christ Jesus, you were all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have done what? Have clothed yourselves with Christ. That's the thing you need more than anything else is through faith to be clothed with Christ. And so we conclude this series we've been calling You're Invited with a very simple invitation. And the invitation is this, come to the table. You have a place at the table. Come to the table. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter your struggle, no matter if you have conquered giants or made giant mistakes, no matter if you have been let down by people or you have let others down, no matter if you feel like you are in the inside crowd or if you're on the outside looking in, if you're grieving, if you're hurting, if you're suffering, if you're wrapped up in sin, if your past is shameful, there's still a place for you at the table. And Jesus says, just come. Come and sit. Come and eat. He has a feast prepared because the table of Jesus is where healing happens. It's where hope is born. So that's the invitation today. If you need it, don't delay. Accept his invitation. If you're ready to be baptized, to confess your faith like these two young men did, do that today. If we can encourage you and pray for you, let us do that. A couple of our shepherds and their wives will be in a parlor, a room right behind me. You can go there as soon as we're standing up in a few moments and they'll pray for you or you can come down to the front. There's something we can do. Don't let the invitation go by without acting on it. We'd love to encourage you today. Let's stand and sing.